Hi, I'm Allison Bukowski, and this is The Customer X-Files. I'm delighted to bring my years of marketing experience to the amazing community that supported me throughout my career. My passion has always been elevating the customer to the focal point of all marketing initiatives, and I'm proud to now lead a marketing organization with a truly customer-led approach. Each episode, I'm joined by an incredible thought leader within the marketing industry, generous enough to share their insights, knowledge, and experience with all of us. Brought to you by the PeerSpot Network, nothing is off limits. And just as our industry continues to evolve, so will this podcast. We will feature guests in live Q&A sessions, panel discussions, and more. So let's get started. Hello and welcome everyone. Today's episode is bringing me back to my roots in marketing, my content roots. My first role in marketing was actually within content. For the first few years of my career, I was tasked with creating content, editing, managing, everything from case studies to product releases and website content. So I'm extremely excited to have this conversation with Emily Amos today. Emily is, for those who do not know, but she is pretty well known, the founder and CEO of Uplift Content, a boutique content agency that crafts customer stories, ebooks, blog posts, uh, you name it, content related resources for high growth B2B SaaS companies like ClickUp, WalkMe, Okta. And I've gotten to know Emily over the last few months. I happen to know that she is a fan of traveling, especially around the globe. She has a soft spot for Istanbul in particular, as well as chocolate ice cream. And like me, she's still not quite sure what she wants to be when she grows up. So we get along swimmingly. And as we've chatted over the past few months, we share similar philosophies, I I think, on content creation. But we're also just passionate about the written word and what it takes to craft a truly excellent story. So welcome, Emily. I'm so glad to have you here with us today. Thank you. I am so excited to be here as well. And we, it's funny because as you and I were chatting a little bit before this, we just have a few questions, but we decided there's so much to unpack that just a few questions is probably going to be more than enough. But of course, let's start with my, my traditional people before professionals icebreaker question. And it's on topic today. So I'm curious, what kind of stories are your favorite stories, Emily, and and why? I put a lot of thought into this because I do like lots of stories, lots of different kinds of stories, but one in particular stands out for me, and that is that I love stories of survival. And for me, I think it all stems back to my very young days reading Reader's Digest. When I was a kid, my mom would take me to our hairdresser, Nadine, who had stacks of old Reader's Digests in her salon. And while we were waiting for our turn, I would always read the stories in the Reader's Digest called Drama in Real Life. And those were stories about people being hit by lightning or their parachutes not opening or, you know, anything you can possibly imagine. And I I couldn't get enough of these stories. I would usually be partway through a story when it got to be my turn to get my hair cut, but I couldn't not finish the story. So I had to bring the little Reader's Digest with me as I hopped up onto like the wooden board that Nadine would put across the chair so that I'd be at the right height for her to cut my hair. And I would, she'd be cutting my hair and I'd just be reading and reading these stories. And your question caused me to reflect on why I like these stories so much. And I think it's because they really speak to the mental and physical strength that people have in really extreme and bizarre situations that they probably have never faced before and they probably never will again. And they just pull me in and and they don't let me go until I finish reading the story. And I don't read Reader's Digest anymore. I don't really see them around in any of my, you know, doctor's offices or what have you. So today... Um, One of my favorite podcasts is called Against the Odd, sorry, Against the Odds by Wondery. Have you listened to it, Allison? I my daughter actually listens to it, which which is funny because I have so many questions now for you about survival stories. Uh, But but she does. She's my podcast girl and loves it. 
Yeah, I love them. I, I've listened to all of them, so I'm just waiting for the next one. Um, but again, they're also, you know, these incredible stories of survival on on Everest, in in a cave, in in deep water caves, in deserts, on the sea. Like literally you name it, someone has survived it. And it's it really I I can't get enough of it. I think that that's really interesting, actually, because I'm listening to you and you'll have to send me a list, maybe if you have one of your favorite books that are in this kind of genre, because my, not my podcast girl, but my younger daughter, we've, we've really struggled getting her to read and to just develop this love of reading. It's kind of a slog for yeah. her. But just recently, that is an area, a genre that she is clinging to. And I'm, I'm struggling. I'm trying to find more stories like that. She just loves those survival stories. Uh, there's there's adventure, but it's real. She's a very black and white, literal yeah. thinker. So she needs to know that this happened, but yet she loves the adventure and kind of suspending the belief that, wow, this actually happened uh, to someone. So anyway, if, if you're willing to share some some novels or some books that you've read in that genre that would be great uh i would have really appreciated mom to mom yeah, yeah for sure what what age are we talking here so she's about to turn 13 but um uh, she can handle some fairly mature content so i would say don't limit yourself uh, okay. in that list but i i'm, I'm also was chuckling because i love that story about the hairdresser and <laughs> i think that you at least you had kind of a little more elevated content in the Reader's Digest uh, because I would go visit my grandmother and she always had National Enquirer. Remember National oh, My grandmother did too. <laughs> I think it was a grandma thing, but she had stacks of them. National Enquirer, or I think Star was the other one. And so I, I'm not really sure what that what that did and how that filtered into my personality, but that whole, like these these stories and gossip, I would just sit and just page and page through so i i think you probably got the slightly uh, I, I did that educational too. content i did that too at my grandmother's house um but she stopped buying those magazines when princess diana died because she realized that she was contributing to that um unfortunate event that see we all can we all can have our moment our epiphany and and change. And I actually that kind of like that story. And I don't blame her and good for her for for doing that. Because of course, as I got older, I sat and thought, why were you buying that trash? <laughs> Grandma, why were you buying that? But at the time, it was fabulous. I loved it. It was so, the Facebook. It was the Facebook of that of that generation. It, it, you know, it, it really was. And I think that that kind of Boy, that segues really nicely into our conversation about stories and storytelling. And specifically, we're going to talk about case studies, but the, the world has changed a lot. You know, you bring up a good point, right? There's the, you know, the the social media in print form that was, you know, maybe even Reader's Digest to a certain extent or National Enquirer and stuff like that. But then case studies now, those have also kind of evolved as we've evolved our attention spans are different the way we want to consume content is a little bit different so let's just address the elephant in the room okay do case studies really matter and are they still necessary in today's you know we'll use obviously b2b space are they necessary today Based on our research and our observations, yes, case studies still do matter. Um, at the beginning of this year, so the beginning of 2023, we conducted a survey on case studies because we wanted to find out the answers to these questions as well. 123 SaaS marketers completed the survey and from the number crunching and data analysis that we did, we had three main takeaways. Number one, case studies work. For the second year in a row, SaaS marketers ranked case studies the number one most effective marketing tactic to increase sales. And this was ahead of general website content, SEO, blog posts, social media, and other tactics. So that was really interesting. Number two, 
the, the survey results found that case studies are a growing priority. Um, all of our survey respondents said that case studies are a growing priority for them. And on average, SaaS companies plan to produce 17 new case studies in 2023, compared with only 12 produced in 2022. And this represents a 42% increase, which is significant. Um, and then the third takeaway, case studies need to be better. Only 12% of SaaS marketers are very satisfied with their case studies overall, compared to 18% last year. So even between this year and last year, the results are still very low. This means that there's lots of room for improvement with case studies. And one of the key areas that marketers want to improve is the metrics or the KPIs for the case studies. Marketers rate metrics and KPIs as very important components for case studies, but they're rather dissatisfied with them in their current case studies. So, uh, you know, lots of room to experiment, lots of room to um, try new things and, and, and see what continues to work or see what starts to work as time moves on. And Emily, what do you think is the kind of the main driver behind um, why they're still so important? Um, I mean, I would imagine much of it has to do with how much we're leaning into that authentic voice of customers and how that has really significantly grown as far as a trusted resource. Um, you know, we and we could argue about, you know, marketing content. Um, you know, we've gotten savvy. I think I certainly have as a consumer, and it would be the same in B2B as far as what kind of content we want. But there is still something that the power of that story. I mean, do you agree? Do you think that's why they've continued to either stay incredibly important or become even more important? Yeah, I agree 100%. I think social proof is incredibly uh, important. Um, you know, we 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 don't always want to make our own decisions on our own as a little island. We want other people to contribute to them, even if it's just, what are we having for supper tonight? And you you just want your partner to just tell tell you what we're having for supper instead of having to think about it. I think in a business perspective, you need to do your research. And part of that research is seeing what your peers are doing and what kind of um, solutions they've tried and what's worked for them. And so having, having a story that is told through the eyes of the user, the customer, um, is a, an incredibly valuable way to, to feel confident that this solution could work for you. Yep. I, I think there, you said a couple of things and I was chuckling a little bit, um, your comment on dinner, because not just dinner, but things I will tell, um, I will tell my husband from time to time. It's like, I don't want to make all the decisions. Could you yes. just, can you just, <laughs> can you just tell me what, what you would like? Don't say whatever you want or, you know, that's fine just say I want hamburgers for dinner and I don't want to think about it anymore because I either I just want someone to tell me or the other piece of it which I think that's what you were just commenting on the validation right we want to be confident but we also want to feel validated in our decision making process so you know sometimes you just want someone to tell you we're having hamburgers for dinner tonight <laughs> A hundred percent. I had this exact conversation last night. In fact, <laughs> good to know it's not it's not just in our in our household. Um, so when we when we think about that and we talk about con like content in general um, and case studies, obviously, as you said, from your from your study up at the top, most important. But there's this little thing called AI uh, that has crept into our world and it made a big splash about six months ago in, you know, for marketers and this whole evolution of ChatGPT, Bard and other AI content creation tools. I'm curious in, in your world, you know, where do you stand? What have you heard about this as far as how this is going to impact 
and or change the landscape of content creation? This is a really hard one for me. You know, I <laughs> I would love to just say, oh, AI, it, it's it's the worst. It's never going to, you know, it's never going to take our jobs. Uh, but I think that, you know, it, it, it requires us to not just have that gut reaction. It requires us to think about it a little more thoroughly. So, you know, I think chat GPT is something that we would be fools not to experiment with and, not to stay abreast of what capabilities it has and what it can do and how we can use it as a tool. But I'm also really unnerved by stories of how people are using it to pump out 30 blog posts an hour. I just, I don't see how the world needs more mass produced thoughtless content. I think, you know, we need to keep top of mind that ChatGPT cannot create something that is unique to you or your company and it can't create something that's uniquely valuable to your customers i think as a tool chat gpt can be helpful in certain ways so you know it can help with idea generation but you still need to talk to your customers and your sales team to see if those ideas that chat gpt generated for you are actually topics that your audience cares about I think that ChatGPT can be helpful for creating an outline, for example, that you then take and you flesh it out and modify based on your own research. So very much a starting point. Um, I think having ChatGPT write a whole blog post, for example, is is asking for trouble. You know, on the surface, the post probably looks pretty decent. But when you look at it more closely, you'll see that ChatGPT makes up quotes or it gets statistics wrong or it misattributes information. But to go through that post and figure out what's right and what's wrong and then correct everything, it will take you much longer than if you just wrote it yourself in the first place. Um, and then when we think about customer marketing and customer advocacy, it's your customers and their voice that bring that uniqueness to your content and your messaging. So it's crucial that you keep talking to your customers and keep listening and keep using the voice of your customer to create unique and valuable content. And I don't think, at least at the moment, I don't think that's something AI can can do very well. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Allison, on on what, you know, what are some of the things that you're hearing customer marketers do with AI? It, it's interesting because I have the the privilege of being able to talk to marketers almost every single day in the form of our customers. And it's also not, not a secret. Uh, I am very much a customer-led marketer, very much customer-led growth. I believe that that is the right business model and business strategy. So I put that out there, of course, as um, it's not a disclaimer. It's just what I believe at my core. Now, that said, it's interesting because I hear a lot of different perspectives. And even within my own organization, we do not all agree on the role of, of AI. So I, I think you bring up several good points. Not surprising. We, we align very closely on the pros and the cons. Um, I did an experiment early on because I felt the same way, that this cannot replicate the human experience. And I played around with it and I took some different pieces of content that I had written or others had written in the form of, you know, a, a blog post, um, a product release, some white paper content. And it did very well with the factual narrative and it was able to expand it and it, it was pretty good. There was some fluff, but when I fed it a story, a blog, you know, a blog that I had written, which is very, a lot of personal details and things like that. It actually came back to me and said, I cannot do anything further with this because I do not know the person. I'm paraphrasing, but that is what essentially it was. And I thought that was really interesting that it can't, it simply cannot. And why would we expect a computer to be able to do that? So to your point, it, it's never going to be able 
at least right now, and I don't think for the foreseeable future, uh, bring forth emotions, a very human or personal experience. You also mentioned, Emily, the, you know, content, like, do we really need, um, you know, a bunch more thoughtless content out there? And I think the short answer is no, we are overwhelmed. Uh, marketers are overwhelmed, but also our customers, I don't care what industry you're in, we are overwhelmed by information. And I hear a lot of people talk about, oh no, it's quality over quantity, but we're going against that by, you know, just plugging like content into these machines and spitting it out because we think that it's going to help us um, SEO or we're going to look better because we have more content. But I always warn people, please keep in mind that you can put all the content in the world out there, but people are smart and they're savvy. And if they're going to give you a little bit of their time and if they figure out there's nothing of value within your content, you are no longer a trusted resource. Emphasis on the word trusted. Um, essentially, if these tools are abused, we have then the National Enquirers, right? We have all of that, like, stack, picture it, stack of magazines next to grandma's armchair that, sure, okay, I might pick it up and flip through it, but am I really going to use that to make a, you know, $500,000 purchasing decision? No, of, <laughs> of course not. Um, I still want to hear from from people uh, I think as far as content creation, since that's what we're focused on, it does some cool things. I have played with it for vacation planning, recipe creation. Uh, what do I need to buy at the grocery store? And it's very useful. Would I use it to make a purchasing decision or to get into the head of an actual human being? Uh, no, absolutely not. So we just, we have to balance it like everything. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, we likely need a new car in the next year. I don't think I would trust ChatGPT to find me a new car that suits my lifestyle and uh, all of the needs of the different members in my family. I, I again, it's, it's right personal connection. You want to hear from from people. It's funny. I was just talking to a customer of ours uh, at a large tech organization yesterday. And the, we were not for this, but we were using the car analogy, right? For the importance of uh, reviews, for example, and hearing from peers. I, would you walk onto the car lot, having done no research or talk to anyone else and walk up to the car salesman and say, you are the sole source that is going to make my decision for me today. I, You go ahead and tell me what what I need to do, what car I need. I mean, of course not. You, you, I mean, my goodness, I won't even buy like a new waffle iron without <laughs> reading through reviews because I, I care about that. And, and also I've talked to, it's really interesting. I've talked to a lot of product marketers as well as customer marketers and they're different breeds. And I think I can say that because I've actually done both, both roles, but customer marketers tend to be, and I'm stereotyping a bit, I realize that more like emotional and, and things like that. Product marketers are a bit more black and white. They're representing the, you know, the product, but even the product marketers I've talked to who would lean more heavily to, I think, AI and they see a place for it have told me, yeah, but eventually, you know what created it? It was a bot. That, that was created to to do that, and you know it. So a white paper that is spit out using AI, not as useful. If it's something that was created and it has voice of the customer, I'm much more interested in using it. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, so what about, I'm going to pivot a little bit. We've been talking kind of more, you know, theoretical, strategic. I want to get tactical for a little bit and ask you a couple of questions that that I'm asked often from marketers. And the first one is the age old, do I need to have my case studies named to be successful or are there opportunities to actually lever leverage anonymous stories, um, testimonials and things like that and to do it well? First, I'll tell you what we found in our survey related to anonymous case studies, and then I'll tell you my thoughts on it, if that's okay. Perfect. 
So in the survey, we found that close to 80% of SaaS companies use named case studies for all of their case studies on their website. Only 3% of companies have mostly anonymous case studies. So this is likely not very surprising to most listeners. Um, but generally speaking, I try to encourage folks to avoid anonymous case studies whenever possible. But I think that there are times where the story is too good to pass up, even if the customer's legal department won't allow them to be named. So in those cases, you just need to figure out how to write an anonymous customer story so that it still has power and it still has impact. And there are a few techniques that we use to do this when we're writing an anonymous customer story. So one of the things that we do is we talk about prestige and reputation of the customer by using descriptors like um, a Fortune 100 company or a leading project management software. Something else that we do, we still use compelling quotes from the customer. Just because we can't name the customer doesn't mean that we can't use their own words to tell the story. And I think that's really important. Um, we also use lots of details, just not any identifying ones. So just like for the named customer story, in an unnamed story, we still want to walk through the specifics of the challenge that the customer was facing how they overcame it, and what results they achieved. And, you know, sometimes because the story is anonymous, we're able to elicit even more details, sometimes even sensitive details and more metrics from the customer because they know that their name won't be attached to the story. The customer feels like they can speak more plainly, more openly. Um, and of course, at the very, very least, you can use an anonymous case study internally to communicate to employees about the company's big win and, you know, how how you all delivered that service. And, and that can be inspirational and instructive at the same time. Yep. I, I love that. And I think that I agree with you. Um, and I'm curious in your experience because one of the things that as we've gotten, perhaps, I don't know if it's just more savvy or as marketing has evolved and voice of the customer content has become more so in the driver's seat. When I look at something and I see that, okay, I'm a cybersecurity company or a financial services organization and I have a customer story and I'm, ta I'm talking about a customer, like you said, Fortune 100 something like that, you know, it doesn't bother me as much because there's, a, I think, an understanding now that, oh, okay, I see myself in that and it's okay that they're not putting their name out there because I wouldn't put my name out there either. I, I'm just, I'm curious, is that just me or do you feel like the, you know, the the marketplace, the the industry, we've become more accepting of that? Yeah, for sure. I think that especially for marketers we know we know how hard it can be to get those permissions but i think as a as a as a purchaser we yeah. we also are savvy enough to know that um a fortune 100 company wouldn't necessarily be able to tie their name to that story and 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 you know i think when you look at all of the stories as a package it also adds credibility to to the stories if if you know even if one or two are anonymous right it okay. I, I think that's a good way of looking at it as well you kind of have to look at the overall library i guess if you will of what is being presented um and it becomes even easier right and i you mentioned something that i'm a big believer in which is don't allow anonymity to stop the story right um the the sources like in in news reporting right in journalism that's how i started out as a journalism major and sources are often protected but we understand that we have an understanding of that and it's okay i mean i'm going to take that because this is really critical and a and a big piece of the story so to your point emily you said sometimes if someone doesn't have that weight on their shoulders of watching every word because they're afraid that they can't say this or they can't say that, you actually can get a much better story. 
And I think sometimes, and you can even blend some of those perspectives and stories to create something really spectacular. And then it's really not as big of a deal. Those quotes are huge that you mentioned. Um, I, I will use a customer's exact words all day, any day over something that is not voice of the customer, regardless of if it has, you know, you know, Susie Smith's name attached to it, for example. Yeah, for sure. hundred percent. Um, so I also want to talk about, I'm actually going to, I'm going to come back to the, the question about voice of the customer and, and reviews. And we'll talk about that a little bit, but the other big question, and you mentioned it at the, the top of our conversation is around measurement and metrics. Now this one comes up all the time. How do we actually measure the success of a case study? And I love your, your take. This is, this is the million dollar question (laughs) for me. This is the million dollar question. I would love for somebody to come up with like a simple solution, but as far as I've seen, there is no simple solution, sadly. So again, I'm going to tell you about the research that we've done, and then I'm going to tell you about the experiences and observations that I have made. So based on our research, 30% of SaaS marketers say that they don't measure case study performance at all because they lack the time, the resources, or the know-how to do so. The rest of the respondents use a wide variety of tactics to evaluate their case studies. The top three ways of measuring the success of case studies this year is, number one, measuring landing page traffic. Number two, measuring anecdotal feedback from sales reps. And number three, measuring clicks from social. Interestingly, the results last year were different. Last year, the top three ways of measuring the success of case studies was, number one, measuring the frequency of use by sales reps. Number two, measuring anecdotal feedback from sales reps. So this one was the same. And number three, measuring downloads. So that's what that's what our research has shown. And then um, just from a observational perspective, um, I was chatting with one of my customers the other day about how they measure their case study performance. And the short answer was they don't. And I asked how they justify the budget for case studies. And she said that she doesn't have to. Everyone understands how important case studies are. And the budget for them for case studies is so small in comparison to the other marketing initiatives that it's never an issue. And I think that that's really interesting, but I still think that the performance of case studies needs to be measured. You might not be able to directly measure the impact that a case study has on a sale, but there are other things that you can measure and you should because case studies take a huge amount of time and effort to produce. Um, So you need to know if they're working for you or not. Uh, Last year I did, um, I think I interviewed eight SaaS marketers to get their perspectives on how to get their, um, to have them chat to me about how they measure case study success. And honestly, I got such a wide range of answers. Um, One person that I interviewed said that case study success for him was if the PR team pitches the story, meaning the case study, to an industry or business publication that picks it up. A couple of the other people that I talked to use their own software to track and measure data related to the performance of their case studies. So that that makes sense. Um, so data that they track include things like page visits, email campaign performance, social performance, and then overall influence on pipeline. Um, one person made a really interesting point about, in her opinion, it was a mistake to measure the impact of case studies. Instead, she felt that it was more important to measure the impact of the campaign that the story supports. So that's that's really interesting. Um, another person tracked which case studies were used in RFPs and then compared that to win rates. Um, and something else that came up a number of times was measuring um, time to close. 
So the case study might not be the thing that gets the deal signed, but it might help remove objective uh, objections and get the deal closed faster. And I think honestly, you know, when you think about how you would go about measuring all of these different things, the trick is that this information is in all kinds of different software programs and it is a ton of work to to pull it all together and 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 figure it out in a way that is meaningful. So I'd love to hear I'd love to hear what you think, Allison, on how to measure case study success. It is like you said, it it is figuratively and perhaps literally the million dollar question. Um, how do we in today's world for marketers where we have pivoted very it's a, been a hard turn to measurement and customer marketers especially right what are you doing how are you measuring it and how are you um, justifying your existence and I think that that's an interesting way of looking at this and one of the comments you made somebody who said you know I really don't have to and I think there's an important distinction between case study measurement for justification purposes versus effectiveness purposes. Yeah, I think pretty- that two different two different things. I agree. I think most marketers would say, don't really have to justify why we're doing case studies because that is one thing, at least in my 20 years-ish in marketing that hasn't changed. Case studies have been my constant and I have touched them or been involved in them in a variety of different ways from a very hands-on to a leadership perspective. And I've never had anyone ask, why are we doing them? Because it just, we get it. And I think we have to take that as a gift. So right there, just stop. Like, you don't, there's no, you don't have to measure it to justify the importance of doing it. I think what we need to measure is how effective are they from a content perspective. And what I mean by the content perspective is like, what is it that's resonating? And I think that's what we should be using to guide future decisions so that we continue to build and create more and more effective case studies. I love that someone said the campaigns thing. You know, it's not about the case study itself. It's how have we used it? And I would shout that from the rooftops. And I agree 100% that I have been so big and focused over the last six months on breaking down internal barriers within marketing, because I don't think we always play very nicely together in the sandbox. Um, Demand generation is doing one thing. Customer marketing is doing one thing. Product marketing is over here on their own little island. Um, But yet we're actually all marketing. And so I think that triangular kind of effect of, hey, content marketing or customer marketing, you know, they're working together. They produce an amazing case study that should be going to demand. They should be using that in a campaign. And then we measure that. How how effective was the campaign? Let's do some A-B testing together. We did a video version. We had a written, you know, version. Which one was more successful? I think the traditional metrics are incredibly important. Um, and I do the same, you know, web web traffic, right? Um, downloads and things like that. I We didn't really talk about it, but I don't think case studies ever should be gated. Um, I don't think, mo- I think most marketers do not, but I've heard of a few that are still kind of gating that content. That should be open for consumption and we can track who is, you know, how how popular are they really? And then we need to do a deeper dive on why. That's, I think, the most important part of measurement. Okay, you took some metrics, that's great. But we stop there and say, oh, look at this, My look at the case studies, it's great. They outperformed other web content that we have by 37%. Well, that's nice, but again, we don't really need to justify why we're doing them. We need to figure out how effective and why were they effective. What was it about this case study that had you know, 32% more downloads than this one. Why? And is it the industry we're talking about? Is it the topic? Is it the content? Is it the way the story was presented? And then I think we start making smart decisions about what we're doing. 
How do you figure that out, though? It's a manual process, I think. There's no data that you can, you know, plug in to get those answers. It It's true. But I think that's where you mentioned that anecdotal was the one thing that showed up consistently, right, over the last yeah. two years yeah. of survey data. So I think that's where you have to marry those two things, right? Um, and usually I think you'll see some trends that, you know, I'll just as an example, um, you have customers and you're the ones for financial services are seeing a lot more looks. Okay. Well, sales is saying that's important. Is it because sales is using them more? Are they pushing them out the door? And I think then it's worthwhile to have a conversation with the consumers of your content internally. And it doesn't, it can be a 30 minute quarterly conversation, but here's what the data is showing us from a quantitative perspective, what do you think? And you'll get some really good feedback and you may find that, hey, um, even though we had three anonymous financial services case studies, boy, those were just knocking it out of the park. That should tell us something, right? So, I, it, you know, it's never a perfect, people always hate it. They're like, but that's manual. Well, manual in the sense that you actually want to dig in a little bit and get some insights. I mean, content is it's a story there's more to it than facts and figures if life was just facts and figures we wouldn't need case studies yeah for sure i agree with you it it, it is what it is and um stories are stories they exactly what you said you you can't it's not math you can't measure them and have perfect answers it's it's an it's an art and a science, and it's it's a matter of weighing up all of the information you have and putting it together to figure out a path forward. 100, 100%. Um, and you can't have one without the other. They have yep. to, they have to coexist. So, yep. um, but yes, I know it's a, it's a hot, it's a hot topic. And I love all those, that feedback you got from from others the, the campaign piece especially as like whoever gave you that i just want to like if, if you're listening well done um <laughs> brilliant so as we before we close i wanted to talk about one other you know concept i guess as far as um fuel for case study creation and that's around reviews Obviously, that's a big part of my world, um, and we spend a lot of time talking to customers about how reviews are not a one-trick pony. It's not a secret. They now are, just like you said, case, and I, this is why I wanted to talk to you about it. So case studies, number one piece of marketing-created content, right? On the flip yeah. side, reviews are now, by quite a bit, the number one tool used by buyers during the buying journey to help inform their purchasing decisions. And so naturally, you would think, let's try to find a, a connection point. So I spend a lot of time talking to marketers about reviews are not one and done. You should actually be leveraging that content for a lot of different things. And one of them is fueling case study creation. So I'm just, I'm curious on your thoughts, um, do, do you have conversations or customers that talk to you about that? You know, sort of where do you sit? So I'm so glad you brought it up. It's it's something that hasn't been part of conversations that I've been um, part of. And now that it's now that you've asked it, it's, it's making me think, oh, geez, why haven't I been having these conversations? So it, it's something that I'm going to start asking about Um I think that it makes a huge amount of sense to to figure out how to help have each asset help each other. Um, and so I guess I would love to turn the question back on you and say, you know, how how are how are you seeing people use reviews to um, help fuel case study creation? Yeah, sure. I and it's. I, I'm I'm surprised but not surprised that it hasn't, you know, come up within conversations with customers. I would say it maybe comes up fifteen percent 
of the time when I talk to other marketers that they're already doing it. And then when we're having a conversation and that's, that is my favorite part of the job is talking shop and being able to coach and help make marketers lives easier because it hasn't been easy for a while. Um, short on resources, short on both people and budget. And so anywhere we have an opportunity to leverage something that already exists, I think is a win. Specifically with reviews, as we've we've talked about, voice of the customer is so important. We want to hear from others. We want to hear from our peers. We want an authentic uh, review. We want a trusted resource. And that that is what reviews provide. That's why we continue to use them in our personal lives and professionally. And when you have a customer um, that has provided a review, um, obvi- obviously I'm partial, but I love the fact that uh, PeerSpot happens to secure reviews conversationally for a lot of customers. So you have a thousand, two thousand words, which is a huge chunk of content, we would be silly to not use that in another way. One of the tools that that we offer is the quick download. So it becomes a case study instantly. The review becomes a pretty case study. That's that's wonderful. And that's great to help like just give sales some additional fodder. What I see some really inventive and um you know, advanced marketers doing, they're using that content as the launch pad for a more robust case study, taking the review and being able to say to a customer or say to someone like yourself, for example, who's helping, who is a true expert in storytelling, hey, I have this amazing feedback here. It's great. I think we're missing ABC. Boy, I wish we could dive into D because our product team would be thrilled to have that. They touched on this piece about a competitor. Boy, it would be nice if we could dig into that because sales would be over the moon. And you you like get this kind of free insight into certain customers and what they're thinking and how they feel about certain things, which allows for an expansion opportunity. It's a very respectful way uh, of handling those conversations with customers. You're respecting their time and their calendar and you can say, hey, look, you shared all this. This is amazing. Can I ask you just two more questions and then could I, you know, polish that up? And it happens a lot and customers are very willing to do that. Um, Or perhaps working like Emily, someone like you, hey, we have these four perspectives. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could tie them together? weave this tapestry on this particular product or this particular approach. So that's what I'm starting to see. And I love those conversations, not to mention uh, stories are not just a long narrative. They don't always have to be in that form. And then you have ways that you can play with the content and use it creatively. So those are some of the main ways that, that I work with our customers or the ways that I get to coach them. I'm curious your reaction to that? Yeah, I I have a couple of questions. So I think it sounds, it makes so much sense what you're saying. Um, You know, they've already either created a case study or at least the foundation of a case study. So why not make the most of it? Um, I'm really curious with the conversational reviews that you mentioned, are those guided conversations? I mean, is, is the interview somebody on your you know on the company side are they do they have a set list of questions that they're asking in order to guide the structure of the response yes so um obviously from from our side from the peer spot side and integrity and authenticity is the cornerstone of what we're all about so there are set questions and those are the questions for every review um, that are posed to to the customer. They provide that feedback. And essentially that information is a lot easier sometimes to just to talk, right? A conversation is easier than, oh, I got to sit at my computer and I have to type this all. That's why we get so much more content. But we don't deviate. That is the list of questions. 
um, for that customer. And it is a, a transcription. There's not editing or anything. That's the review and that's the information that is then presented to, to users that come to our site. So that's the first piece of it. Um, there is an opportunity to customize, um, which customers really love to add a couple of que strategic questions. That is information that's then available for them. So there may be a particular piece of a product and we're happy to do that and add that on as kind of ad hoc um, questions. So yes, that is how the process works. And does somebody, after the transcript has been created, does somebody go through it and take out the ums and the ahs and any duplication of, you know, those little phrases that we all say that really yep. don't That's you? That's the extent of it. Um, during the transcription process, that is the only thing that comes out. The, the pauses, um, ah, uh, that kind of stuff. Otherwise, everything else is verbatim. Wow. And, and, um, that's that's really interesting. Uh, the so the way that people talk, the way that people respond, is generally coherent and concise and and valuable. I guess is what you're saying. Very very much so. Very much so. And you know, questions about the experience, uh, purchasing process, implementation process, all of those things that you would want to know is asked. And it's really when I, when I was a I was a customer before I came over to PeerSpot, and it was like, yes, that those are the basic questions that, for the most part, start for the foundation of a case study. So, and I think that having that review gives you this, like I said, a launch pad. There's so it's a well, a content well that you can go to and be like, man, this is good stuff even if it's this particular section. And then look what I can do with with this, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just a really nice way to do it to save time and, and resources for a lot of overworked marketers. Yeah, for sure. And I'm curious with um, shorter reviews. So reviews, you know, you get asked to do a Google review or a G2 review, are those, those are written reviews. So a different yeah. style, I'm guessing. Th those are, yeah, those are written reviews and they, they have their place. Um, some of the downfalls of that is typically you, you're, you're, you're a means to an end, right? I go and I write like, okay, I have this one thing in mind to say, and I'm going to say it. And maybe it's just a few sentences. So it doesn't necessarily give that meat that you want. Um, and there's not another question, right? There's not a follow-up. There's not, um, you know, somebody that is is having that conversation. So you're going to have far less as far as the content quantity that's available. And we've seen that quality goes right along with that. Um, yeah. Because we just, and sometimes it's not, we're just like, no, I have this one thing to say and you say it and it's, you know, short paragraph and there you go. I mean, that's what, how, what most of us do, even in our consumer lives, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, so, I'm wondering if, if the, you know, the reason that it hasn't come up in my conversations or, you know, you, I think you mentioned 15% of the time it comes up in when you're speaking with other people, um, I'm wondering if that's because this concept of conversational reviews is just not that well known. I, I would love to say it's our, our like our, you know, our, our best secret, but I don't want it to be a secret. Um, it is just a very effective way of collecting genuine voice of the customer content. And I think that that is why uh, for us, and we focus exclusively on the enterprise tech space, why our the platform by an intelligence platform has so much traffic in that space um we just you know simply and the customers that work with us they certainly know and and understand because i i do my own case studies of course and that is the thing that comes up time and time again the quality and the quantity of the content that i get and what i can do with it is by far heads and shoulders um above 
you know, some of the others. So to your point, that could be Emily, why, um, but maybe it's something, Hey, that's useful for you when you're having those conversations and it could get the ball rolling and maybe even make your life easier when you're working with customers. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I, you know, I've been also, you know, for our own company, reaching out to some of our happy customers and you know, obviously we ask for testimonials and I've been starting to see if anybody would be willing to record themselves um, giving a testimonial. But it's it's intimidating to think that you can be concise and um, get everything across in one quick shot. Yeah. Uh, on a video, at least for me, I'm a writer, so I like to kind of ponder and edit and think about it. Um, I know that there are people who can certainly do that off the top of their head, no problem. But I like this idea of the conversational review because you have a thousand words. You don't have to cram it into 50. So right. it's much easier to explore the relationship and, and why it worked for you. Exactly. And there's no, and like you said, there's not a, not a time limit. Um, I mean, you and I could talk for another 45 probably about, you know, content creation and the role of case studies. And we might have to do it a 2.0 of, of this because it's just been such a pleasure. I, I, I hope, I hope it comes across when we're, when we're talking, but I am such a content junkie. This is, so near and dear to my heart. And I have to ask you as, as we close, same, same question, but I made it very specific for you. Best piece of advice for marketers when it comes to content and you can interpret it however you would like. Yeah. I put some thought into this one, but I, I keep coming back to the fact that you need to know your audience inside and out. You need to talk to them. You need to ask them what keeps them up at night. You need to ask them what they aspire to. Uh, you need to ask them if they have any questions about certain topics. You need to get to know them as people. And I think until you really know what makes them tick, you won't be able to write content that they need and you won't be able to write content that they care about. We already know that I love that answer because I'm, because <laughs> I'm such a you know people first uh, approach to everything and and customer first approach. But I couldn't agree more. And I will just piggyback off of that. Even though you know it's funny, you and I were talking as we got uh, started in this conversation, and I said, you know, I don't do the video. I keep it very traditional podcast um, audio format. But I do that because I think people are more comfortable. It's easy to just have a conversation. And I would say what has served me very well, in addition to just the more you know about your customers, to your point, all of that. But when you're working with someone, a, a customer for a case study, the more you know about them is, is wonderful. But also if you're going in and you're having a conversation, you get to interview even though it might feel a little weird at the beginning, ask some personal questions out of the gate. It is an exceptional icebreaker. And chances are after about 20 seconds of this feels a little weird, why aren't we just getting into the heart of the topic? Um, if you can make someone comfortable with you, the conversation and the content and the feedback that you get in return is so much richer and it just, that authenticity comes through when you're able to do that. So that's my piggyback onto your advice, which is wonderful. I agree. Thank you for letting me talk about Reader's Digest. <laughs> I love that story so much because I have an image now. I have, I am picturing you as, as a little girl sitting in that chair. And um, so you're in the hairdresser chair. I'm in the like recliner. Um <laughs> You know, it's like a split screen kind of moment. And if I had artistic talent, I would try to sketch it out. I don't. So thankfully for you, that won't come. It'll just be <laughs> like a good story. It's the, it's what is in your mind. Um, that's the best way that you can interpret it. So thank you so much, Emily, for, for joining me and doing this. This was 
this was definitely a favorite for me, this conversation. And I know that listeners are going to find it extremely valuable. Thank you, Allison. It was fun. Sounds good. And everyone, thank you for joining us as always. Uh, stay tuned, you know, follow these where you get your podcasts. And until the next time, we'll see you later. Thanks again for joining us. Don't forget to follow me, Allison Bukowski, on LinkedIn, where you'll find information about upcoming episodes, Q&A sessions, and live panel discussions with our guests. Customer X-Files is brought to you by PeerSpot, the authority on enterprise technology. The PeerSpot buy-in intelligence platform is where tech professionals go to get the most reliable information on enterprise tech so they can be sure that what they buy is exactly what they need. Powered by a community of over 650,000 enterprise tech professionals who share expertise, PeerSpot provides in-depth reviews, buyer's guides, online forums, and more, giving professionals the confidence to make the right buy-in decision. For more info, check out marketing.peerspot.com. And to keep getting this show in your podcast feed, every time a new episode drops, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.